Good morning, church. Great to see you on this Lord's Day. Thank you, Pastor Mike, and what a delight it is, again, to be back with you. The privilege last week for us to, to share in that outdoor service and in the picnic together. Thank you for everyone who made that day possible. So many hands go into that as well. But if I didn't have a chance to say hello to you last Sunday, I bring you greetings this morning in the presence of Christ and the joy of the Holy Spirit. It really is a privilege to be back with you. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're finding yourself happy in Jesus. I hope that you are looking forward to the future. Not only for your own spiritual life and all that God wants to do in and through you, but also for us as a church. And while I wish that I could return from a a three-month sabbatical and say, I know everything that God wants us to do as a church, I am happy to plead almost complete ignorance before you this morning. Because there is one thing that I want to do today. I've got one sole purpose and aim, and that is to call our church to fast and to pray. Both. More about that in just a few moments. But first, let me say, it is Sunday, September 10th of 2023, and God is on his throne today, and all of God's people said, let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me, if you will, to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to look at one of the great stories in the Bible today, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Next week, we're going to launch a new series, also in the Old Testament, that I'm calling Unrivaled. It is primarily going to be a call for the church to recognize, affirm, and to celebrate the supremacy of God in our world and in our church. The setting for that series that begins next week is going to be the life of Elijah. And while we might say Elijah is the human hero of that story, God himself is the primary hero, and so our eyes are going to be fixed on him. And and I want us to get ready for that series next Sunday by looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Let me set the context for you, if I may, for just a moment. It's, it's about the events occurring within the reign of King Jehoshaphat, one of the great names in the Old Testament, and one of the great kings. We, we call him Jumping Jehoshaphat. And as one of the kings of Judah, he stands out because there weren't too many good ones, and he was one of the few. In fact, God himself gives the epitaph upon Jehoshaphat's life when he says, he sought me all the days of his life. He did many things, but at the end of chapter 19 in 2 Chronicles, he leads the nation of Israel in a time of significant spiritual renewal, what we might call a revival, and a revival that spread through the tiny land of Judah, and it affected every single life. We pray for that very same thing to happen in our midst today. Jehoshaphat sought to lead the nation well. There there was not perfection in the nation by far, 
There were still spots and aspects of idolatry, but, but by and large, the nation was coming back to God. And whenever that happens, whenever a person or a nation or a church comes back to God, you can, you can count on significant opposition. And that's where we pick up the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The words will also appear on the screen, but I hope you have your Bibles open. For it says, after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. So they're coming from Edom. They've crossed over to now what is the western shore of the Dead Sea. They are 25 miles outside of the city of Jerusalem, this great army. Verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Who wouldn't be? But then watch what he does. And set his face to seek the Lord. And proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all of the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Three times in that verse, the word seek is mentioned. It might be helpful to mark them in your Bible. Verse 5, and Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it to the descendants forever to Abraham, your friend, and they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house." And cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold. In other words, God, look. Watch what's happening. Not because God cannot see, but he is calling God's attention to the crisis before them. The men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Verse 11, behold, look, they reward us. This is how they pay us back. By coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit, O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. And now you may know the context then of verse 12, one of the great verses in this passage. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And this is God's holy and inspired word. And all of it is true. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Father in heaven, we ask now that as we look at your word and primarily as we look at this story, Father, we 
we ask this, that you will not be relegated to simply the God of history. That you will not be, be put simply on the shelf of a textbook. But that the things that you did in yesteryear, Father, you may be pleased to do again today. I think it is fair to say, Father, that we are facing crises all around us. It feels like a great horde is coming against us. And it is okay. In fact, it is right for us to say we do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. So lead us to that, I pray this morning in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. After a fatal mass shooting, or even a natural disaster like the wildfires in Maui, people will often send to victims and their families thoughts and prayers. It's become common then for some wag to say people need more than your thoughts and prayers in times of crisis. And I agree with them so far as if that's nothing but a trite phrase, then save it. Keep it to yourself. But, but when you say you're sending your thoughts and prayers and you back that up with true, real prayer, there is nothing more powerful. Prayer is never an excuse for non-engagement, nor is prayer just something that you say you're going to do and not do. But I would contend to you this morning the best thing that we can do when a crisis occurs or a tragedy strikes is to pray. And in this story, Jehoshaphat does something that by many human standards would seem utterly pointless. A great army is coming against him, and what does he do? He calls the nation of Judah to fast and pray. In verses 1 and 2, you see that coalition of nations that have formed a military alliance against the people of God. And intel, the best intel he was operating on that came to him from some advisors was that they were on the western shore, the Dead Sea. They are now not far from the capital of Jerusalem. They are somewhere down by the desert near Masada. And some historians suggest that this is the largest army ever formed in history up until that time. Judah is badly outnumbered, and the text almost gives you the sense that Jehoshaphat could feel and hear the advancing hoofbeats now just 20 miles or so away. The nation is in a perilous situation. Judah is a tiny nation. It consists of just two tribes. And Jehoshaphat knows he does not have the manpower, the resources, or the ingenuity to survive such an invasion. He knows he and his people are completely overwhelmed. Maybe for some of you this morning, that describes your exact circumstances. How do you respond when you are backed into a corner with no way out. You may be the only Christian at your work, and it is hard to stand up with courage when you're the only one who is speaking for God. 
As the school year has begun, parents may feel as if the cultural tsunami that is breaking all around us has invaded your child's school and you're concerned. And, and maybe you're on a fixed income and you are facing more month than money. And it's your common story. It's your familiar strain every single month. And when the odds seem stacked against you and you are so overwhelmed that you say, I've got nothing. I have some good news for you. You are on the threshold of a spiritual breakthrough. But it doesn't mean that breakthrough is going to happen. Because there is something that you and I must do in order for us to experience new dimensions of God's power and the Spirit in our lives. And it will mean, among other things, for us to go deeper with God in our spiritual walk, but deeper with God in prayer. And to go deeper with God in prayer means that you must believe, yes, that he exists, but that he is also a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. That's why I love this passage. Because in the midst of this crisis and this national tragedy, if you will, about to break out, Jehoshaphat and the people of God seek the Lord. In verse 3, Jehoshaphat, we're told, was afraid. Who wouldn't be? An army that has numerical superiority is coming against him. And he is filled with fear. What is fear? But fear is the normal reflex to the problems that we face in life, to a negative report or to a circumstance, whether it's a doctor's report, maybe your teenager just got his or her license and you as a parent are filled with fear. Jehoshaphat is afraid. Again, that's a normal reaction, but the issue is, what do we do with the fear that we are experiencing? What do we do when the crisis comes, when we do feel backed in the corner, when we don't know where to go, what do we do with that fear? Here's the first thing you should do. Set your face. The first thing you need to do is set your face. And look at how Jehoshaphat does that. He sets his face to seek the Lord. He does not despair. He does not give in or give up. But he sets his face on God. Your face, my face is the best barometer of what's going on in our lives. Most of the time, we can read on another person's face something of what they're feeling and something of what they're thinking because our face says it all. And what has our face has our attention. And we can reverse that. What has our attention has our face. And Jehoshaphat sets his face on God. And then he makes a resolution, if you will. He resolves not to wallow in fear, but to walk in faith. And after he has given this daily briefing, this intelligence report of what's happening within his own borders, he is now terrified, but he quickly determines that he is not going to look at an invading army or become paralyzed by the sound of marching hoofbeats, but he is going to look to God. And for most of us, when we find ourselves in a similar situation, we have to make the determination not to look at the problem, not to look at the crisis, but to set our face on him. We need to turn our face away from the sources of our fear and redirect them to God. So shift 
your focus, friends, and set your face on him. God, you have my face. God, I know my problem's there, and I can glance at them, but I'm going to gaze upon you. I'm not going to fixate on my problems. My problems are not too big for you. Yes, they are too big for me, so I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to set my face on you. I'm not going to worry about it because worry doesn't change anything. You know that, right? Who has your face? If you are looking at your problems and you're staring at them and you're gazing at them, I have bad news for you. You're going to experience something of a face plant. Troubles will loom even larger. So where are you looking? Oh, take the example of Jehoshaphat into your own life and set your face on God. Number two, hunger for him. Hunger for God. I said a moment ago that we're on the verge of a spiritual breakthrough when we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis and we don't know what to do about it, but our eyes are on God. You are very close. But first, you need to set your face on him and keep it there. The second thing you need to do is hunger for him. And that's the next thing that Jehoshaphat does when he proclaims a fast in Judah. Fasting is an intense spiritual discipline that has as its purpose seeking God. It's abstaining from food. Or maybe, as we'll see in just a moment, something else, another activity in your life, in order that you might, during that abstinence, seek him. Because more than our stomachs need food, our souls need God. And Jehoshaphat proclaims a fast throughout his entire nation, and they all respond and assemble together. There are victories that we will not experience in our lives apart from prayer and fasting. Last week at the picnic, I shared about the story of us having the privilege of, of going up to Mount Tabor, Lisa and I, while we were in Israel. And we went to, to the top of, of, of this mountain, which is one of two possible locations for the transfiguration. This is the traditional site, and at the top is, is an amazing Church of the Transfiguration, where Christ literally metamorphosed in, in front of and before the face of a few of his disciples. As Jesus and three of those disciples come down the mountainside, and it's fascinating to look at this mountain from a distance even today because you see in the, at the base of the mountain teams of people. Houses built up on the mountainside and all. When Jesus and the disciples come down from the mountain, the disciples, those who had not gone to the top, were there trying to cast a demon out of a little boy. And they were unable to do so. Jesus took care of the situation. He cast the demon out. But later the disciples asked him, Lord, why were we not able to cast the demon out? And he said, this kind will only come out through prayer and fasting. I think that's a pretty good description, not only of the trouble that some people are facing in their own individual lives, but that's the trouble that we are facing in our world today. This kind, this kind of trouble that we are facing can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. God has designed, I believe, a doorway 
for spiritual victory. And that doorway is the key of fasting. In verse 3, Jehoshaphat got everybody together. And in a powerful display of unity, they came to Jerusalem. They abstained from food. They sought the Lord. Later on, as you read in this chapter, they are praising and worshiping him together. More about fasting in just a moment. But I want you to see that fasting is not a magic wand that we use to manipulate God. God wants to bless us. And he will use fasting for us to experience new spiritual victories and breakthroughs. But we don't use fasting to force God to do something. It doesn't work that way. But rather, it is a portal for you and for me to walk out of the shallow end and dive into the deep end with all that God has for us. When you're facing a crisis, set your face on him. Hunger for God in a way that you will never be filled by food, but only by him. And number three, pray God's word. Pray God's word. That's really what Jehoshaphat is doing in his amazing prayer in verses 6 through 12. He appeals to God's supremacy. I love that, how he begins. Oh, Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. He is declaring who God is. He is declaring his sovereignty and his supremacy. The question mark, by the way, in that verse, are you not God in heaven, is not expressing doubt but absolute certainty. You are God. You do rule over the, the kingdoms of the nations. He is pointing also to God's acts, to the things that God has done, to the promises that God has made. And in his prayer, what he does is he takes the word of God and the acts of God and all that God has done for history, and he obligates God to continue to do what he has said he has done and will do. That might be need to, hurt, to, to be heard again. Because he, he made known back to God the promise he made to Abraham that this land would be to his descendants forever. God, you said that to Abraham. And by the way, he was your friend, Jehoshaphat calls him. And so he is now obligating God all over again to that promise he made many years ago. And now some others were try, trying to come and take it away. And Jehoshaphat stands on the promises of God, and he claims them, but hear me, he obligates God to continue to keep them. That's a powerful way to pray. When our kids were young and we were raising them, I was the parent that was probably most prone to overpromise. You know, if you do this, if we do this, we're going to go do that. And I promise we'll do that. And my wife would always say to me, be careful what you promise. Why? Because kids excel. It's a spiritual gift of theirs. Of reminding you what you said you would do. And, and they would come to me and say, but dad, you said, you said we were going to do this. That's what Jehoshaphat is doing here. God, you said, and I am holding you to it. He is obligating God to his word. Now, 
in order to hold God to his promises and to hold God to his word, here's what we need to do. We need to know his word. We need to know his promises. We need to be able to know the contents of this book, and we need to get this book assimilated into our own lives so that we can open this book and we can lay these promises before him and say, God, this is what you said you would do. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, sometimes it may feel as if the gates of hell are winning. But God has said, Jesus has said, I will build my church, and nothing will be able to come against it. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that in the midst of everything that you feel around you is crazy and insane and falling apart, that God's promises are true and good and can be counted on, and therefore we have this joyful privilege of obligating God to the very things he promised he would do? Seek the face of God. Hunger for God. Pray God's word. Number four, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. I love verse 12. We certainly emphasized it as we were reading through it. God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's my story today. And that's why I say I am happy to affirm that. I am happy to plead my ignorance. We do not know what to do, but, and here's the key, our eyes are on you. The Apostle Paul, when he is describing his own life, and he's talking about his own physical resume, if you will, of his background, of his pedigree, and all that he has done. He said, but I cast all of that aside, all of my learning, all of my education, all that I have experienced by rising up within the ranks of Judaism, I put all of that aside. I put no confidence in the flesh because the only thing that matters is what God is able to do. And that's where we are today. There's, there's no hope. And what we have, there is no great ingenuity in our thoughts and our ideas. We don't know what to do. But we are looking to God. So what does that mean for us as a church? It means, again, that my sole purpose today was really to call us to two things, to fast and to pray. And I want, to, I want to call our church to fast in a specific way and for a specific time over the next three weeks. Starting tomorrow, September 11th. That'll lodge in your mind, won't it? Starting tomorrow, September 11th through Saturday, September 30th. I want to, I want to call you to fast. But let me give you some, several options when it comes to that, because medically speaking, for some of you, abstaining from food or a meal may not be for you. So let me give you some options in the midst of all of that. That while in Scripture, fasting has a specific reference to avoiding food for an extended time in order to pray, maybe that fast will look 
different for you. For those of you who are able to skip one meal a day, let me encourage you to do that. Just skip one meal a day and then use that time to pray. Rather than eat, pray. Some of you are thinking, that's cool because I don't eat breakfast anyway. No. <laughs> if, if you already skip breakfast, that doesn't count. There has to be some kind of sacrifice associated with this. So for those who are able, skip one meal and use that time to pray. But here's another option. Maybe for some of you, um, it will be to fast of a different kind. Maybe it's to avoid eating sugar for the next three weeks. Not just for health reasons. But maybe it's that mid-afternoon snack. Um, that's loaded with bad stuff. And rather than turn to that mid-afternoon snack, you use that time to seek him, to pray. I don't want you to focus so much on the abstinence, though you have to choose to abstain from something as to what you do in the midst of that abstinence. You seek him. Maybe it's no snacking simply between lunch and dinner or no snacking in the morning, no snack in the afternoon. You know, when you think about how much time you spend going and getting a cup of coffee or going and getting a snack and using those five, ten minutes to pray, let me encourage you to do that. Maybe for some of you it will be a, a fasting from screen time. Now, there is a time waster. Now, I'm not talking about those of you who have work responsibilities, and so it requires you to sit before your terminal for hours upon a day. I'm talking about avoiding social media for the next three weeks or avoiding just surfing the Internet and how much time is just lost in the midst of doing that. So no social media maybe, no surfing on the Internet, and using that time to seek the Lord. So fast in some kind of way, and in that abstinence, seek Him. And then pray. And I want to encourage us as a church to pray the same things every day for the next three weeks. So as we go through this series on Elijah next Sunday, I'll remind you about the need for us to be praying for these similar things together. But let me list them to you. We're going to post them online after the service this morning. But here they are on the screen for you to follow for now. Ten things I want to ask our church to pray for over the next three weeks. Number one, a spiritual hunger and growth. Pray for the spiritual hunger and growth of our church. Pray for the spiritual passion and maturity of our body. That we may go deeper in our relationship with God and become more like Jesus. Pray that claiming the promises of God, claim that knowing what God's word has said, pray it in your own words in terms of what God has declared, but pray for our spiritual hunger and growth. Number two, pray for unity. Always right for us to pray for unity within the church body, that we may be of one mind and heart, living and serving together for the advancement of God's kingdom. Number three, pray for conversions. Again, I, I don't have any edict from heaven today. 
But I do want to ask you to pray specifically for people's lives to be spiritually transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to list a number. I'm not going to ask you to pray for 100 or 1,000 or 10,000. If you want to, go right ahead. Because I've got no magical number, but I want you to pray for true, real, spiritual conversions to happen within our midst and within our community. Both inside the church and outside the church. A spiritual renewal, a spiritual revival where people are being converted to Christ. They experience and know the love of Jesus Christ. Number five, pray for the leadership of our church. Pray for the wisdom, discernment, and guidance of our church leaders, including our pastors, ministry staff, elders, all of our volunteers as they shepherd and serve the congregation. Oh, pray for the leadership of LCC. Number six, for health and healing. As I said about unity, it's always right for us to pray for healing. It's always right for us to pray about someone's physical health. The ministry of Christ shows us his compassion for those in need in those ways. So pray for the physical, emotional, and even the mental health of our members, of those who are facing difficult circumstances and asking for God's healing and comfort. We could probably take time today and and list a number of those concerns because there are always many in the life of our church. I would just add that tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, some of us will be gathering right here at church to pray for Eleanor Mead, who is one of our teenagers in the life of our church, who is going to experience a bone marrow transplant tomorrow. But we're going to pray tomorrow night and continue to lift up she and her family. Join us at 7 after the college and career group meets, and we'll pray and pray for others. Number seven, pray for families and singles in the life of our church. Pray for strong, healthy, happy, loving families within our church. Pray that that each will be a source of support and will grow in their faith. Pray for, for God continue to bless our singles and single parents and young adults and 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 that God would fill them every day of their lives with new dimensions of their experience with him. Single moms, single dads, singles, we see you. We love you and we pray for you and care for you. And we want to continue to pray for the families of our church and the singles in our church every single day for the next three weeks. For children and youth, pray for the spiritual development and protection of our children and youth. That they may become wise and that they might live in love like Jesus. If you know anything about our children's program. That's everything is geared towards that. Teach them how to live and how to love like Christ himself. Number nine, pray for, uh, well, the strength of our church in the midst of spiritual warfare. If there's anything that's become really clear to me even during a time of sabbatical is that the enemy doesn't take a break. And that he is seeking to attack the church and the body of Christ from any possible angle. So begin every single day covered in the righteousness of Christ and asking God to deliver you personally from the deceit of the enemy and to make you strong in the power of the Spirit. Pray for that for yourself. Pray that for our church. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18, take up the sword of the Spirit and pray. 
pray with all kinds of prayers, he says. And he expresses that in the midst of spiritual warfare. And then number 10, pray for the glory of God. Pray that in all things he gets the honor, but pray that the glory of God would so fill our lives and our church that his presence among us becomes palpable. I love that that moment when Solomon is standing before the people of God and he is dedicating the temple and we're told that while he was praying, the glory of God came down and so filled the house that everybody inside had to leave because the the glory of God became so overwhelming. Pray for the coming down of the glory of God among us. Pray for those ten themes. As you fast, as you stay away from social media or the screen, as you skip a meal each day for the next three weeks, again from Monday the 11th through Saturday the 30th, Seek him. Pray for these things. Let me keep reading then in verse 13 of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Just let the word of God give you the rest of the story, if you will. Verse 13 says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. What a beautiful picture of the families before the presence of God. Verse 14, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, a prophet, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeel, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, this is a prophet speaking, Listen, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for this battle is not yours but God's. What a great statement. Just stand back. Don't be afraid and behold what God is going to do. He will fight. It's his battle. Verse 16, tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of, of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. So this, this army of superiority in numbers is coming up. From the road of the, from the valley. They are to go down and just stand there. It sounds like a suicide mission. But he says again, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position. You'll see the Lord's salvation, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites, the Kohathites, and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So if they go into battle with anything, it's praise, it's worship. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe as prophets those who speak his word, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Imagine that scene. 
And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. They just turned on one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great number goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. The battle is the Lord's. What do we do? We fast, we pray, we worship. Let's bow in prayer. And our Holy Father, how we take joy in reading a story like this. But in reading all of it, its entirety, Father, there is again this resounding echo from our hearts that says, do it again. Father, what you did in history, in your mighty act, would you be pleased to do once again today? Not for our sake, but for your glory. Yes, your glory among your people. Yes, Father, your glory in your church because it is in the church as it was in the temple of old that you have now placed your name. For your name is in this place. And so, Father, we ask that your honor, your esteem, your might, might be made manifest. Father, as we move into an extended time over these next few weeks of fasting for a period each day, in any way, Father, that you place upon our hearts to pursue it, as we pray for these themes and these, these needs and more, Father, we will do this. We will stand back and we will watch what you do. For the battle is not ours, but is yours. Father, we do pray. That in all that we do as a church, it, it will be the gospel of Jesus Christ that is proclaimed and heard and felt and lived out. 
Father, we want to be a people who, who declare what is of first importance, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again. Because that's the hope for us and the hope of the world. So, Father, we pray that even now as we pause to remember what Christ has done, as we take a piece of bread and drink from the cup, that on behalf of his sacrifice, you nourish us and sustain us and continue to keep us and make us stronger in your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Pastor Mike.